Hi there. Thank you for listening to ASMR Bedtime Stories. All of the stories read to you on this podcast are either available in the public domain and are therefore available for free and fair use, or I have obtained express written permission from the author publishers to audio record these episodes. I hope that you enjoy listening, and please feel free to rate the podcast, provide me any feedback, send any requests my way, and you can also follow me on Twitter to get updates and interact with me that way. You can find me at ASMR Bedtime Stories, or my handle is bedtime underscore ASMR, and I'd love to hear from you. Tonight, I wanted to do another episode with fairy tales and folk tales from around the world in honor of my listeners from all over the globe. Um, My list has actually grown quite a bit from the last time, so I wanted to say thank you very much to all of my listeners from the United States, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Canada, Hong Kong, Hungary, Germany, Slovakia, Pakistan, Romania, the Netherlands, Brazil, Australia, Czechia, Norway, France, Thailand, Russia, and Belgium. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you, thank you. I hope you all enjoy my episodes, and I hope that they bring you a little bit of peace and comfort. So, for tonight, I wanted to read some folk tales from the Pacific. So, this is actually going to be folk tales from Hawaii, Australia. And I have one story from Indonesia. So, go ahead, get yourself settled in, relax, snuggle up under your covers, close your eyes, take a deep breath in and out. As I read you tonight's bedtime story, Tonight's first story is called How Maui Fished Up the Great Island, and it comes to you from Hawaii. Now, although Maui had done many great deeds, he was not thought so very much of in his own house. His brothers complained that when he went fishing with them, he caught no fish, or if he drew one up, It was a fish that had been taken on a hook belonging to one of them. 
Maui had managed to get it tangled onto his own line. And yet, Maui had invented many things that his brothers made use of. At first, they had spears with smooth heads on them. If they struck a bird, the bird was often able to flutter away, drawing away from the spearhead that had pierced a wing. And if they struck through a fish, the fish was often able to wriggle away. Then Maui put barbs upon his spear, and his spearhead held the birds and the fish. His brothers copied the spearhead that he made, and after that, they were able to kill and secure more birds and fish than ever before. He had made many things that they copied, and yet his brothers thought him lazy and a shiftless fellow. And they made their mothers think the same about him. They were the better fishermen, that was true. Indeed, if there were no one but Maui to go fishing, Haina of the fire, his mother, and Haina of the sea, his sister, would often go hungry. At last, Maui made up his mind to do some wonderful fishing. He might not be able to catch the fine fish that his brothers desired, the ilua and the bimoe, but he would take up something from the bottom of the sea that would make his brothers forget that he was lazy and the shipless one. He had to make many plans and go on many adventures before he was ready for this great fishing. First, he had to get a fish hook that was different from any fish hook that had ever been in the world before. In those days, fish hooks were made out of bones. There was nothing else to make fish hooks out of, and Maui would have to get a wonderful bone to form into a hook. He went down into the underworld to get that bone. He went to where his, his ancestress was. On one side, she was dead, and on the other side, she was a living woman. On the side of her that was dead, Maui took a bone, her jawbone, and out of this bone, he made his fish hook. There was never a fish hook like it in the world before, and it was called Manaikalani, meaning made fast to the heavens. He told no one about the wonderful fish hook he had made for himself. He had to get a different bait from any bait that had ever been used in the world before. His mother had sacred birds, the alay, and he asked her to give him one of them for bait. She gave him one of her birds. Then Maui, with his bait and his hook hidden, and with a line that he had made from the strongest alona vines, went down to his brother's canoe. Here is Maui, they said when they saw him. Here is Maui, the lazy and the shiftless. And we have sworn that we will never let him come again with us in our canoe. They pushed out when they saw him coming. They paddled away, although he begged them to take him with them. He waited on the beach. His brothers came back, and they had to tell him that they caught no fish. Then he begged them to go back to sea again, and to let him go this time in their canoe. They let him in, and they paddled off. Farther and farther out, my brothers, said Maui. 
Out there is where the Ulua and the Pimoi are. They paddled far out. They let down their lines, but they caught no fish. Where are the Ulua and the Pimoi that you spoke of? said the brothers to him. Still, he told them to go farther and farther out. At last, they got tired of paddling, and they wanted to go back. Then Maui put a sail upon the canoe. Farther and farther out into the ocean they went. One of the brothers let down a line, and a great fish drew on it. They pulled. But what came out of the depths was a shark. They cut the line and let the shark away. The brothers are very tired now. Oh, Maui, they said, as ever thou art lazy and shiftless. Thou hast brought us all this way, and thou wilt do nothing to help us. Thou hast let down no line in all the sea we have crossed. It was then that Maui let down his line with the magic hook upon it, the hook that was baited with the struggling alai bird. Down, down went the hook that was named Manai Ikalani. Down through the waters the hook and the bait went. Kauna Hokahi, the old one to the holds fast the land to the bottom of the sea was there. When the sacred bird came near to him, he took it in his mouth, and the magic hook that Maui had made held fast in his jaws. Maui felt the pull upon the line. He fastened the line to the canoe, and he bade his brothers paddle their hardest, for now the great fish was caught. He dipped his own paddle into the sea, and he made the canoe dash on. The brothers felt a great weight grow behind the canoe, but still they paddled on and on. Weighty and more weighty became the catch. Harder and harder it became to pull along. As they struggled on, Maui chanted a magic chant, and the weight came with them. O oh, island, O oh, great island, O oh, island, O oh, great island, why art thou silkily biting, biting below? Beneath the earth the power is felt, the foam is seen. Come, O oh, thou loved grandchild of Kanaloa, on and on the canoe went, and heavier and heavier grew what was behind them. At last, one of the brothers looked back, and what he saw, he screamed out in a fright, for there, rising behind them, a whole land was rising up with mountains upon it. The brother dropped his paddle when he saw what had been fished up. As he dropped his paddle, the line that was fastened to the jaws of old Kaune Hokahi broke. What Maui fished up would have been a mainland, only that his brother's paddle dropped and the line broke. Then only an island came up out of the water. If more land had come up, all the islands that we know would have been joined in one. There are people who say that his sister of the sea was near at the time of that great fishing. They say she came flooding out on a calabash when Maui let down the magic hook with her mother's sacred bird upon it. Haina of the sea dived down and put the hook into the mouth of old one tooth and then pulled
know that the hook was in his jaw. Some people say this, and it may be the truth, but whether or not everyone on every island in the great ocean, from Kahikimoe to Hawaii, knows that Maui fished up a great island for men to live on. Second story for tonight is called Why There Are No Tigers in Borneo, and it comes from Indonesia. Though tigers prowl the jungles of Java and Sumatra and many other islands of Indonesia, there are none whatever in the forests of Borneo. An old folk story tells the reason for this. It seems that the Raja of all the tigers who lived on Java found that food was getting so scarce that he and his subjects were threatened with starvation. So, he decided that he would send word to the inhabitants of Borneo that they must send him food or he would come with his army and conquer the land. He selected three messengers to carry his ultimatum to Borneo, and they traveled over the sea and came to the island weary and hot. They searched everywhere for the Raja of Borneo, but could not find him. When they were about to give up, they met a tiny mouse deer. Where is your Raja? The tigers demanded. We have an important message to deliver to him. He is hunting, the mouse deer replied. What is your important message? We bring word from our Raja that your ruler must surrender. Take us to your Raja so that we can deliver our message. The mouse deer thought quickly. Would it not be better if you rested here in the shade after your long journey and let me carry the message for you? I promise to find the Raja and deliver your message promptly, and I will bring you his answer. The messengers looked at one another and decided, since it was so hot and they were so tired, to let the mouse deer do as he suggested. Very well, said the spokesman, but be quick about it. Go and tell him that the Raja of all tigers demands food in great quantities, which we shall specify. It must be given to us at once, or our Raja will send his army to destroy you. What is more, he said, stepping forward and nearly knocking down the tiny mouse deer. Give him this as a token of our Raja's might. He drew out a tiger's whisker and gave it to the mouse deer. This is from the royal face, he said importantly. The Raja himself plucked it from his whiskers to show how strong he is. The mouse deer took the royal whisker and held it away from him. It is very large, he said in a tiny voice. Your Raja must be strong and fierce. Be gone, said the messenger imperiously. We will wait here, but not too long. The mouse deer turned and fled. His thoughts raced as he ran. If the Raja of all the tigers in Java needed food, he must be desperate for meat. I am meat, thought the little mouse deer. 
and so are all the creatures on Borneo. If the Raja of all tigers sends an army, he will destroy us, and then he will remain in Borneo. I must think. He ran through the woods and leaped the streams. Suddenly, there was a rustling sound in the leaves, and his quick eyes spied his friend the porcupine. The porcupine peered up at him. What is your hurry, Gunchill? he asked. It is too hot to run so fast. I am worried, but seeing you has solved my problem. Give me one of your quills, friend, and say Borneo for all of us. I'll gladly give you a quill, said the porcupine. Surely I have enough and to spare, at least one for my good friend the mouse deer. But can't you tell me why you need it? Later, said the mouse deer. You are a good friend indeed. You have saved our country. And off he bounded, bearing the quill in his teeth. He ran as fast as he could back to the spot where he had left the tigers. They were pacing back and forth, looking annoyed and fierce. Well, you have been gone a long time, the oldest one cried angrily. I had to find our Raja, said the mouse deer breathlessly, and I had to wait until he woke from his nap after hunting. Then I had to wait for an audience, and then I had to wait for his answer. Well... What is it? The messengers demanded. Did you tell him what our Raja said? Word for word, as she told it to me, the master answered. I told him that your Raja demanded food at once and surrender, or he would come with his great army and destroy us. Yes, and he said, the master replied. He said, very well, let the Raja of all the tigers in Java come and fight us. He will find that we can fight better than he. In fact, he said, I am weary of peace and would welcome a battle in which we could prove our might once more. Did you give him the whisker from the royal face? The oldest tiger asked. I gave it to him, the mouse deer replied. And do you see this whisker I hold in my teeth? Is that a whisker? The tigers asked. It is larger than you are, longer by a foot, and thicker than your leg. It is from the royal face of our Raja, the mouse deer said. He took the quill from his teeth and handed it to the oldest messenger. Feel it. See how thick it is. Our Raja plucked it from his face and said that I was to give it to you to take to your Raja. Nothing more, the messengers asked, turning pale. Nothing more. Oh, are you going? The oldest tiger said hurriedly, We must return at once. Our Raja waits for your Raja's answer. Of course, and it is hot here, and you have a long way to go. Be sure to take good care of the whisker. Although, if need be, our Raja can always send another one. The oldest tiger took the big quill carefully in his paws, and all the messengers stared, started back to Java. They crossed the land, then the water, and then the land again, and came at last to the spot where the Raja waited impatiently. You have been gone far too long, the Raja rumbled in his throat. What word do you bring? The messengers trembled at the terrible tone of his voice, thinking of the message they had to deliver. They looked 
oldest one, and he swallowed hard and said, Oh, mighty one, the miserable Raja of Borneo said he would welcome war and send you this. He stepped forward fearfully and held out the big, thick quill of the porcupine. It comes from his royal face, he quavered. The Raja of all the tigers in Java gazed at it long and hard, stroking his own whiskers the while. He could not help feeling the difference. He said nothing for a long time. Then he looked blandly at the trembling messengers. I have decided, he said, that it would be better to demand food of the elephants of Sumatra. Whether the elephants of Sumatra ever sent the food, the story does not tell. But it is a fact that from this day that there have been no tigers in Borneo. she had been. 
upstream in the future, for Bakun would surely have had vengeance against them all now, and they must not risk meeting him. How that little duck enjoyed her liberty and being with her tribe again. How she splashed as she pleased in the creek in the daytime and flew about at night if she wished. She felt as if she never wanted to sleep again. It was not long before the laying season came. The ducks all chose their nesting places, some in hollow trees and some in maria bushes. When the nests were all nicely lined with down feathers, the ducks laid their eggs. Then they sat patiently on them until at last the little fluffy downy ducks came out. Then, in a little time, the ducks in the trees took their ducklings on their backs and in their bills and flew into the water with them one at a time. Those in the maria bushes waddled out with their young ones after them. In due course, the duck who had been imprisoned by Bagoon hatched out her young too. Her friends came swimming around the maria bushes she was in and said, Come along, bring out your young ones too. Teach them to love the water as we do. Out she came, only two children after her. And what were they? Such a quackling gabble, her friends sat up, shrieking, What are those? My children, she said proudly. She would not show that she too was puzzled at her children's being quite different from those of her tribe. Instead of down feathers, they had fur. Instead of two feet, they had four. Their bills were those of ducks. And their feet were webbed, and on the hind ones were just showing the points of a spear. Like Bagoon, always carried to be in readiness for his enemies. Take them away, cried the ducks, flapping their wings and making a great splash. Take them away, they are more like Bagoon than us. Look at their hind feet, the tip of his spear is sticking out from them already. They do not belong in our tribe. Take them away, they have no right here. And such a row they made that the poor little mother duck went off with her two little despised children of whom she had been so proud despite their peculiarities. She did not know where to go. If she went down the creek, the goon might catch her again and make her live in the burrow or kill her children because they had webbed feet, a duck's bill, and had been hatched out of eggs. He would say they did not belong in his tribe. No one would own them. There would never be anyone but herself to care for them. The sooner she took them right away, the better. So, thinking away upstream, she went until she reached the mountains. There she could hide from all who knew her and bring up her children. On and on she went until the creek grew narrow and scrubbly on its banks, so changed from the broad streams which used to flow placidly between large and broken plains that she scarcely knew it. She lived there for a little while, then pined away and died, because even her children as they grew saw how different they were from her, and kept away by themselves, until she felt too lonely and miserable to live, too unhappy to find food. Thus pining, she soon died away on the mountains far from her fold in Arumba, 
or hereditary hunting ground, which was hers by right of birth. The children lived on and throve, laid eggs and hatched out more children just like themselves, until at last, pair by pair, they so increased that before long all the mountain Greeks had some of them, and there they still live, the Gaiadari, or Platypus, quite a trip apart, for when did ever a rat lay eggs, or a duck have four feet? The last story for tonight is called The Bunyip. Long, long ago, some men left the camp where they lived to get some food for their wives and children. The sun was hot, but they liked heat, and as they went, they ran races and tried who could hurl his spear the farthest, or was cleverest in throwing a weapon called a boomerang, which always returned to the thrower. They did not get on very fast at this rate, but presently they reached a flat place that in the time of flood was full of water, but was now, in the height of summer, only a set of pools, each surrounded with a fringe of plants, with bulrushes standing in the inside of all. In that country, the people are fond of the roots of bulrushes, which they think as good as onions, and one of the young men said that they had better collect some of the roots and carry them back to the camp. It did not take them long to weave the tops of the willows into a basket, and they were just going to wade out into the water and pull up the bulrush roots when a youth suddenly called out, After all, why should we waste our time in doing work that is only fit for women and children? Let them come and get the roots for themselves, but we will fish for eels and anything else we can get. This delighted the rest of the party, and they all began to arrange their fishing lines, made from the bark of the yellow mimosa, and to search for bait for their hooks. Most of them used worms, but one who had put a piece of raw meat for dinner into his skin wallet, cut off a little bit and baited the line with it, unseen by his companions. For a long time they cast patiently, without receiving a single bite. The sun had grown low in the sky, and it seemed as if they would have to go home empty-handed, not even with a basket of roots to show, when the youth who had baited his hook with raw meat suddenly saw his line disappear under the water. Something, a very heavy fish he supposed, was pulling so hard that he could hardly keep his feet, and for a few minutes it seemed that either as if he must let go or be dragged into the pool. He cried to his friends to help him, and at last, trembling with fright at what they were going to see, they managed between them to land on the bank of a creature that was neither calf nor seal, but something of both with a long brown tail. They looked at each other with horror, cold shivers running down their spines, for though they had never beheld it, there was not a man among them who did not know what it was. The cub of the awful bunyip. All of a sudden, the silence is broken by a low wail, answered by another from the other side of the pool, as the mother rose up from her den and came toward them, rage flashing from horrible yellow eyes. Let it go, let it go, whispered the young men to each other, but the 
Captor declared that he had caught it and he was going to keep it. He had promised his sweetheart, he said, that he would bring back enough meat for her father's house to feast on for three days, and that they could not eat the little bunyip. Her brothers and sisters should have it to play with. So, flinging his spear at the mother to keep her back, he threw the little bunyip onto his shoulders and set out for the camp, never heeding the poor mother's cries of distress. By this time, it was getting near sunset, and the plain was in shadow, though the tops of the mountains were still quite bright. The youths and all ceased to be afraid when they were startled by a low, rushing sound behind them, and looked around, saw that the bull was slowly rising, and the spot where they had landed the bunyip was quite covered. What could it be? They asked one another. There was not a cloud in the sky, yet the water had risen higher already than they had ever known it to do before. For an instant, they stood watching as if they were frozen. Then they turned and ran with all their might, the man with the bunyip running faster than all. When he reached a high peak overlooking all the plain, he stopped to take breath and turned to see if he was safe yet. Safe! Why, only the tops of the trees remained above that sea of water, and these were fast disappearing. They must run fast indeed if they were to escape, so on they flew, scarcely feeling the ground as they went, till they flung themselves on the ground before the holes scooped out the earth where they had all been born. The old men were sitting in front, the children were playing, and the women chattering together, when the little bunyip fell into their midst, and there was scarcely a child among them who did not know that something terrible was upon them. The water, the water, gasped one of the young men, and there it was, slowly but steadily mounting the ridge itself. Parents and children clung together, as if by that means they could drive back the advancing flood, and the youth who had caused all this terrible catastrophe seized his sweetheart and cried, I will climb with you to the top of that tree, and there no waters can reach us. But as he spoke, something cold touched him, and he quickly glanced down at his feet. Then, with a shudder, he saw that they were feet no longer, but bird's claws. He looked at the girl he was clasping, and beheld a great black bird standing at his side. He turned to his friends, but a flock of great, awkward, flapping creatures stood in their place. He put up his hands to cover his face, but they were no more hands, only the ends of wings, and when he tried to speak, a noise such as he had never heard before seemed to come from his throat, which had suddenly become narrow and slender. Already the water had risen to his waist, and he found himself sitting easily upon it, while its surface reflected back the image of a black swan, one of many. Never again did the swans become men, but they are still different from other swans, for in the nighttime, those who listen can hear them talk in a language that is certainly not swan's language. There are even sounds of laughing and talking, unlike any noise made by the swans whom we know. The little bunyip was carried home by its mother, and after that, the waters sank back to their own channels. The side of the pool where she lives is always shunned by everyone, nobody knows when she may suddenly put out her head and draw him into her mighty jaws. 
The people say that underneath the black waters of the pool, she has a house filled with beautiful things such as mortals who dwell on the earth have no idea of. Though how they know, I cannot tell you, as nobody has ever seen it. I hope you enjoyed tonight's bedtime stories. I look forward to reading more of these kinds of stories to you. There's a whole section in here on how things came to be as different forms of folklore and fairy tales tell it around the world. So I look forward to bringing those to you in later episodes. I hope that by now you're all fast asleep and very relaxed. I'd like to wish you a good night.